Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Michael Lewis is my guest today. I only met Michael in the last year, but as your readers do, man, um, I feel like I've known you a long time and your work has been incredibly important to me. Uh, as a writer, the way you're able to enlist us in the story and in point of view is something that I've thought about a lot and tried to understand. Your gift is remarkable, uh, the series of gifts that you have. Your, your new book is <laughs> probably even getting more attention than you anticipated, though you knew it was gonna get an extraordinary um, um, amount of uh, attention. Uh, going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon about Sam Bankman Freed uh, and um, the collapse of crypto. We're gonna talk a lot about the, the book uh, and about your approach in your other books, but I thought it might be useful to start with a couple of working definitions. And here's how I was thinking about it. Um, it's like as someone who's written about world beaters, new thinkers, borderline cheats and total winners, and has also studied coaches very closely and reported on that. What would be your working definition of an effective human? And be as specific or as broad as you can. Like, don't limit your answer to one or two things. Like, ah, what a question. what's an effective human? What a question. Um, the first thing that pops to mind is, um, do you achieve what you set out to achieve? But, but that's kind of too limited. The, that's too limited. The, can I slightly change the question? And well, I think you're after it though, but you're after it with the, that not being enough because let's back up, let's back up. Why wouldn't that be enough? Because, Maybe it okay, has to do with the North Star that started it, right? That's so, right. It's all, it has to do also, it just has to do with the nature of the goal setting. The, the goals are, the, you know, yes. that you, you can set, you can set a very low bar and jump over it. Or you could set a kind of weird bar and jump over it. So part of the the effectiveness is is which is the setting of the goals. It's like what you're setting out to do. And narrowly, it's like did you set did you do what you said you were going to do? Effective is different from admirable or useful or uh, or like uh, great <laughs> or lots of other things. But if you're asking me, how do I identify people I think worth writing about? people who are sufficiently compelling that I want to that I want to put them on the page that's a little different answer it's a much different answer well sure but your books are peopled with individuals who set out to jump over all sorts of bars and succeed or fail at that and i guess what i'm getting at first part of the question because there's a second part too but i guess what i'm getting at is perhaps when you say, I say an effective human, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is, is just accomplishing X, does that make you an effective human or does that just make you someone who can get things done? Because it seems like your, your um, aperture is such that you're taking in a, a wide group of people who get a lot done. And then certain people, it seems to me, you might single out as being of um, a purpose that's useful for, for, for greater study. Uh, that, that sounds right. That sounds about right. I, I, I don't, um, it's funny you ask the question the way you, the way you do, because I don't think I've ever actually asked that question before. How would I define an effective human? I, I, I have kind of rules of thumb about what make people great characters for me. And it's, you know, at the top of it is like, are they great teachers? 
can they can they educate but and right below it is are they kind of colliding with the world in interesting ways that tell us a lot about the world but that's different from like just affecting human i don't know it's uh yeah. it's like you might you might you might think of it this way if, if you're judging the effectiveness of a, of, of a person it's like the effectiveness of it. It's like the quality of an Olympic dive. There's sort of two parts to it. There's degree of difficulty and there's quality of execution. And, you know, a cannonball beautifully executed is still not so great. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, it's, uh, so, yeah, I, I might think of it kind of that way. What you set out to do, you, you measured partly by what you, the, the difficulty of what you set out to do and partly by how you did it. Right. But then I would say digging underneath that, what are the attributes or qualities that make somebody an effective human? Because it seems you've, by my reading, I could go through all of your books and find people who by many standards would be. And I wonder, because in, in this book, I would say there are ineffective people who accomplished a lot, effective people who were thwarted. So I'm wondering what attributes or qualities do you think are important to make somebody an effective person uh i mean there are a lot of different ways to get a, to get your effects it's like there are a lot of different ways to get your effects in art uh or theater or what you do i don't think i'd even pretend to be able to list them all i think there are people who i, mean, I think i just think of the characters that i've written about there are people who are extreme like the big short characters extreme there are several of those guys that are very effective but dysfunctional outside of their little world then there are people like i don't know uh billy bean who is he gets his effect the quality that's required there is a is a willingness to confront an entire an, an entire world order that he's going to smash so qualities i think that qualities that help someone be effective and certainly these overlaps with qualities i like in my characters sufficient indifference to the opinion of others that you you pursue something even though people tell you that it's dumb or because you 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 have a kind of mission about it uh tied to that a kind of courage uh an ability to articulate your situation so you can you can sort of see your story yes that makes sense i mean it's funny you you write often about people who mythologize themselves as they go as i do sbf in a way almost anti-mythologized himself. And I think that's really interesting when you talk about word salad or, or, or kind of almost made it a posture to act as though he didn't give a shit about the myth that he was building. Well, so Sam Bankman fried when you think of talking about effective humans, you wouldn't put him in the end on the list. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's uncanny. On the one hand, kind of wild what he did. On the other hand, the consequences of what he did were the opposite of what he set out to achieve. I mean, it's almost to a thing and a person, the things that he wanted to do, the things he wanted to help got hurt and the things he wanted to hurt got helped. But on the other hand, totally socially isolated kid with no real ability to connect to other humans finds himself essentially the center of a cult. It's a, that, that you would never have predicted for him where he got when you knew him when he was young. As you know, I mean, I, I not only do I love your writing, but I find this book, I mean, what you said earlier about you want not only to these people to be teachers, but you want these characters to tell you something about the world. And I want to really get into what I think is at play here 
the lessons we should pull from it and that have been constant from your books. But I do have a question about even the sort of passive passivity of the sentence structure there. You know, when you say that he found himself at the center of a cult, in a way, as you write it and describe him, on one level, that is what's at play. But on another level, isn't that perhaps part of the trick of this game-playing person, perhaps, to be able to Columbo his way into these situations? And isn't it possible that it is what he wanted the whole time? What is what he wanted? That he wanted, that he wanted to be thought to be as important as he thought of himself. Yeah. Yeah, the power, the, the, the power yeah. at the center of the structure. Yeah. So... Because so, you say found himself, but that's not how I read it. Reading your book, that's not well, how I, I read it. Well, I think there's some. I think there are a bunch of accidents in this in in the creation of Sam Bankman Freed. I don't think anything was determined. Uh, that he is very much a creature of this moment. I mean, same same human being who comes of age thirty years ago does not find himself on Wall Street. I mean, in fact, maybe even fifteen years ago, that the that there were social filters that would have strained him out out of the business he, that he barely passed through what little social filters that still exist that were presented to him the birth of automation in the financial markets and the existence of these high frequency trading firms who systematically go into the math departments and physics departments of mit and harvard and princeton and yale and stanford and turn these math kids into money kids that without that i don't think sam bank finds a place in in finance i think that he ends up being a very frustrated like physics teacher or something i mean but it, so there's an accident there there's an accident in the way he finds his what he sees as his calling i mean this whole idea of effective altruism doesn't exist 15 years ago and the idea that you put yourself out there as that as a that, that all of a sudden you have this greater purpose to making money and there's an end that justifies a lot of means. That, if he doesn't have that, I don't know what he does. I don't know where he ends up. The existence of crypto. I mean, that, that there was this parallel financial structure without real rules, without real grown-ups that ena enabled him to do all kinds of stuff that would have been very hard to do inside the community. Uh, and, and, and yet, like, yes, uh, and yet, uh, you know, the question one would ask is sort of like, is that... Is EA and the Harvard listen the 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 story is incredible how he meets the EA people all of it and I don't mean it's strange credulity like it's an amazing thing that it that it happens but perhaps it's a cloak right perhaps it was a cloak he could wear to put himself in the position um, that he was in and because Michael you and I have both read Dreiser and you know I, I on the one hand I hear you. And on the other hand, it's the financier. So, like, so, so, uh, you, so you may, you may, you're thinking that in other ages he would have found other cloaks. Of course, because this kind of person is going to either run a giant Ponzi scheme or work their way. And as my reading of your book, meaning I've read the other stuff, but I'm, but I'm, it's your, it's your book and the the way that that you depict the world. I think you that there are aspects of him that you like, but I actually think the book is, and this is what's fascinating to me. The book, I think, is actually more clear-eyed than perhaps you in these interviews sometimes are about him. Because you're, as a person, I think, it reads like there's this 
affinity or a desire to keep understanding him or feeling bad for this socially isolated person. But they're, uh, page after page of the book, you're depicting lies. He tells misdirection. You're uh, apt fraud. I mean, over and over, you're actually in the pages I've encircled uh, of, of, of these things. But then you give these interviews uh, that are much more anodyne. Um, and I wonder if that has to well, be- There's a reason for that. that. Well, there's, that that's intentional. And the reason for that is I wanted the reader to be able to come to the story without the baggage of my views. And the story is presented really without the baggage of my views. The story gives the reader an opportunity to think lots of different things about what happened. I, and, I, and I didn't want I didn't want the, the book tour, the interviews about the book are inevitably pressuring the author to sort of reduce it to an opinion piece. And um, it's it's so stupid to reduce this story to an opinion piece. It's such an amazing story just as a standalone story. And if you just tell it as a story and leave yourself out of it and let the reader make their make sense of it, you come to the conclusions like you've come to. But but you're you know, it's amazing the range of opinions there have been about the book. Uh, I mean, and about him in the book. Oh, I know. When I told people, the told really smart, some of the smartest people in the world, like you'd acknowledge that I was talking to you, some of them got really angry because their <laughs> sense of what's going on in the book, I think, is conflated with your public statements about not wanting to opine. And, but I do think, I do think there's one thing that I have not heard anyone ask you. You've been on this tour. I haven't heard all the interviews, obviously. Maybe someone has. But if I think about heuristics and I think about behavioral economics as as you sort of brought to the world uh, in the unknowing project by reporting on Kaversky, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, you know, you start the book, Michael, there are these two amazingly important things that the overture of the book is these two things. And, and one, which I want to talk a lot about, is the Anna Wintour scene. But the other one is the auspices under which you got involved. And you got involved by being asked to endorse this cat. Asked not to endorse him, asked to evaluate him. But which, what, yeah, yes, but on um, you take this walk with him and it's it seems clear it's the one part of the book where we do get your opinion and you seem taken with the journey that this guy's on and surprised by him and kind of touched a little bit. You know, those details about him with the crumpled, they play differently throughout the book. The Bob story, which I'm gonna get to, plays differently throughout the book. Yep. But, and, and again, it's something that I don't, haven't heard people really talk about, but it's crucial, right. it's what you did, right? But you are starting on a hike with a dude before you're in your, wearing your author's hat. And I feel that's dangerous. And I think it's the one moment that I feel, I wonder if you've thought about from a behavioral economic standpoint, if you were slightly allowed yourself to be enlisted because of the auspices in which you started. I haven't heard anyone ask you, so speak so, to it. So the answer to that is no. The purpose of that scene, well, it's just the truth of how I met him. So I don't think you can understand him or this story unless you remind everybody that everybody who met him was kind of charmed, kind of didn't smell a rat, kind of that, that he had, he was sort of taken in by major politicians, every celebrity you can think of, all the venture capitalists, fellow crypto people, that it wasn't. So the idea that, I mean, I just thought it was a funny scene. I, a friend is asking me just to like check him out because nobody knows who he is. I'm not actually like being paid for financial advice. I spent two hours right. with him and, my, and, and nothing smells. 
So that's the, in two hours, nothing would have smelled to you either. I know. And and but but the 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 punchline of the thing is I I had become really interested in his journey, like him in his situation. I thought this is a mechanism for. I mean, he was walking social satire. That, that that this pile of money gets created out of out of nowhere in eighteen months, yes. and the world starts to organize itself around the pile of money. So I wanted to kind of s- s- watch that happen. I didn't have a I didn't have a strong strong view of him as a character yet. I'd only spent two hours with him, and the and I actually end on that note. I like I didn't actually answer my friend's question. Who is this guy? And the book is an exploration of who is that guy, but it takes me two years to get to it, uh, or eighteen months to get to it. I didn't, you got to remember that I didn't even commit to writing a book until after it collapsed. And I didn't start writing it till the end of January. So I know all the bad stuff uh, when I, when I start writing it, it's not like, oh, I got to, got to figure out how to incorporate the bad stuff into this thing I was going to write. Cause I hadn't written any of it. And although oddly, very oddly, if you look at it closely, you can probably see that the first five or six chapters wouldn't have had to change very much that if the reader knows this is all senses in the back this is kind of impending doom that this bad thing is coming but i didn't have to really weave much of that into the like the material was the material and so i thought you can't as a reader experience have this experience unless you are kind of sympathetic to him in the beginning because the world was and and so that that's in te- it's intentional that the portrait of Sam starts out lighter and it ends up darker. Well, but I would say the second part of that overture, the Anna Wintour scene, and then Natalie's sort of recounting of the ways in which Sam lies, distorts, disappoints without awareness of consequence. I don't think that's sympathetic at all. Uh, you set up, you pit him again. It's interesting. You have these two monarchs who are treated like monarchs, but it's each of them rules over a kingdom of cotton candy. Who, Anna Wintour and Sam? Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and neither really yeah. knows any, anything about the other. So Anna, I think Anna Wintour looks out and sees a pile of money, and Sam looks in and says, I, this is a strange woman, why am I talking to her? Yes, and you're kind of showing it's your version of the social network scene, if I'm putting exactly as much of my mind into this as I need to. But both of them, like as I say, are treated as these important figures and you are lambasting. To me, you're really sending both of them up in that moment because, as I say, they're, they're, they're overseeing kingdoms of cotton candy and yet they take themselves incredibly seriously. And the world is taking them incredibly seriously. Seriously, but I read that and I feel like I'm meeting a monster who is viewing all of this like um, a game that he's trying to get underneath to maximize his little endorphin rush. Was that not your intention in that sequence? Because also his canceling on people, leading them on. I thought the scene is funny it's hilarious it's hilarious and it was the intent the main intention was to show i mean if you notice anna winter doesn't even say it she's never even quoted it's just like she's just a she's a pole for him to dance around 
Only but when he's talking and he only sees her when he's talking. He only I puts mean, her face are, on. Yes. When he's talking. So the thing that interested me about that scene, it, it, and it was repeated over and over in Sam Bankman-Fried's life, if this is like one of a hundred scenes I could have drawn, is that the way he always lived in two realities, that there one reality wasn't enough, that just you and me talking was not enough, that he he always had this other place he, his mind was. And the, the game he's playing while he's playing, there are two games he's playing. He's playing the game with her, and then he's playing this video game that he plays all the time. And that video game is this other place he goes. And it's not just like, oh, amusing distraction. It's at least as important to him as the game in reality. He's, and if you think about how he's led his life, it's always been, there's always been this other reality he's lived in. He never had, he was never, like as a kid, never really dragged into the world in the way most kids are. He was able to kind of live alone in his head. And he still lives alone in his head. But he's now living alone in his head with all these consequences for the outside world. And he's interacting with the outside world in all kind of curious ways. So the two going on side by side and the way he's flipping back and forth between the two, that was the first thing that really interested me. The second thing was like little things like the way he actually plays this video game he plays, like what, how he thinks about it, how he thinks it, his the fact that it was also a way to introduce a character, right? Everybody knows who Anna Wintour is. Everybody knows that she's sort of the... the princess of this world not everybody knows who sam bankman fried is and that sam bankman fried is in this situation with her 18 months earlier no one knew no one knew who sam bankman fried was and in this encounter sam bankman fried is clearly the the higher status person uh she she's coming to him and that was a way it was a way of setting him up that way look the world's revolve the world is now revolving around this kid uh with his pile of money so the, the scene served that purpose too. It also serves some just like, you know, just let me tell the reader a lot about what he was doing. Like she's interested in his political giving and she's interested in, you know, she wants, so it enables me to, well, and actually the last thing is it was so interesting to me, that particular episode, that particular encounter, because if Sam has very, had very few hard principles, like they know a lot of rules, not a lot of rules in Sam's life, none. Right, but the fashion and thing, but the, the fashion, the, the, the fashion, fashion thing, thing is like the one. This is the one thing he hates, and that uh, it's like the one thing where he sounds like an ordinary person having these principles about it. Like people pay too way too much attention. He hates the way people are are uh, deceived by appearances or care about appearances or choose who their friends are by how they look, and she represents that. So it was just a way to get a lot of, across about him and his situation to me. And if you'd have been sitting there with me. As I was sitting in the hotel room, I mean, it was me and yes. him and his computer, and she couldn't see me. Uh, if you'd have been sitting there watching that, you wouldn't have thought monster. You would have thought this is insane. Uh, you'd also laugh the whole time. You'd have thought this is very funny, but this is crazy. And if you'd have been me, yeah, I mean, your pen is going a mile a minute over your page because you can't believe what you're saying. Well, but Monster comes from within that. While you're telling that story, you're also telling us about all the appointments he doesn't keep, his indifference. I guess through that beginning section, like let's say the right. first, whatever, 15% of the book, you're talking about stuff that then, I mean, it's amazing. It all comes back at the end. Not amazing. This is what you do better than anybody else. But 
And that's not a small thing. It's a huge thing. It's why you're like, you know, our favorite, our favorite writer. But when, for instance, his indifference to con- the consequences of his micro and macro actions is at play right from the beginning. His indifference to his yep, own, that's, br- his indifference to his own brother. Yeah. His indifference then to this woman who loves him. His indifference to all the people who get hurt along the way. His indifference, and it's great because you make him the hero at the Jane Street thing to uh, in the little group of people reading, we can have a rooting interest in Sam. But then you show us how what he does is this monstrous kind of destruction of someone a little bit dumber than him. And his utter indifference. And what it makes me think is that I can't understand. This is the one thing where I have not truck with you, but the one thing that I have a hard time kind of getting to is if if throughout you talk about the fact that this is not only the best game player, but this is a person who can go seven layers underneath the game and then ratchet back up to only six because he knows that the person he's dealing with isn't smart enough to go to level seven. So they're only going to go to six. So that's where he's going to live at level six. Then how can you also think any of what he did was because he didn't notice or because he was clueless or because he didn't care? That's where I have the cognitive dissonance because I'm like, well, no, Michael always shows me this is the person and this is what he's going to do. Well, the person you show me is somebody who doesn't, let all this money get stolen by accident. That doesn't track for me. So there's a lot there. One of the things that interests me about him, about him as a character, and I think is just true, is that I think born without empathy. Like, yes. like he, he doesn't have it. Like that, I mean, I don't know how to put it a different way. It's not his fault he doesn't have it. He's born without it. It's like born, born without a left arm. But that's uh, sociopathy. That is sociopathy, right? But plus action. I'll let you put the word to it. But it's but his own colleagues, this comes across in the book very clearly. And, yes, it does. Uh, and so so one of the consequences of this absence of feeling is an indifference to the externalities of your behavior, to all the stuff that happens because of you that don't that isn't, you know, you're not, you're not thinking about, oh, that's bad for someone else or, oh, what's going to happen to this person if I let them lie for me? Or, oh, how are people going to feel if if I impose this kind of risk on them, whatever the risk is? In the case of Anna Wintour, it's social risk, right? It's like he sort of lets her think that maybe he's going to come and she probably tells a bunch of people he's going to come and then he doesn't come and she's socially embarrassed. And But it's, it's yes. And Natalie's, there was an interesting way to present it because she was close enough to him to see that like in so, some of it, he didn't mean to hurt people. Like it wasn't, Mal- Harvey Weinstein got off. On being on 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 being a a jerk to people, the, Sam, it's just it's the tenor of it's different, but yes, absolutely true. That's absolutely true. The money stuff. So this is the 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 like how could he, at once be so clever, and at the same time be so stupid? I mean, if he's so clever, we wouldn't have caught it, right? I mean, it's, he's not that clever. But but I think the key to this is. Two things going on. The, the problem is there are two things going on. The first is the trial, the, the the foreshadowing of the collapse of FTX is in the collapse of Alameda Research at the very beginning, right? You see, you see someone who is so catastrophically sloppy and so wildly neglectful of the conventions of like money management and so indifferent to the risk he's subjecting other people to. 
that half of the effective altruists in his firm quit and think he's, think he's a criminal. Yes. A- and and they think that money is money has been lost and they think lost means stolen or stolen or something really bad has happened. And Sam is just indifferent to it. And it's it's really interesting that after they leave, they find all the money that it's lost. Like it was well, it was well, lost it like- is interesting. in that moment when he puts the he said, you know, he does the 80 20 thing and he's like, well, let's only be 20 percent upset. And that, by the way, let's treat this as though. Uh, we've, we have still 80% of the money, and he's doing that theoretical thing. That is also the way con artists speak, right? They find a way. You know, there's this little footnote that you have toward the end of the book, and nothing's unintentional with the way you write these books. But that little footnote around page 217 or 216 where he says, well, if they would have asked me, I would have either um, changed the subject or, you know, thrown a bunch of word salad at them that meant nothing. Yeah, that's right. That was a really important footnote. Well, I think it's the key to the book in a way because that footnote, and you're smiling because that footnote. Yeah, I'm smiling because no one else has brought it up, and and I keep waiting for people to bring it up. But so, yeah, so let's the, just explain that foot. Let me just explain that footnote. So this, it's all collapsed. FTX is collapsed. Sam is still uh, at large in the Bahamas. I'm there, and I'm asking him questions like, one of the sources of the problems is that his hedge fund or Alameda Research, whatever you call this thing, this trading firm, was a customer of his his exchange his crypto exchange ftx and they had the ability to borrow unlimited sums of money from ftx and the way the mechanism for this was they just switched off the the risk engine that that applied to every other customer when it came to alameda research alameda research is effectively able to run big losses on ftx that no other trader was so i asked him no one had actually like he says, asked, no one's asked. Yeah, no one's asked him the specific question. Everybody's asked the question. Of course, it's like the most obvious question. It's the first question I asked him. You got these two entities. There seems to be a conflict of interest. You've got this exchange, and you've got right next to it essentially a a crypto high frequency trading firm that's yours. Like, w- how is it treated on the exchange? And people asked it at a general level. And you know what's funny is what they were thinking of when they asked the question. And the high frequency traders who traded on a, on FTX all thought this: Are do they have do they have windows onto other people's trades? Does Alameda Research essentially get get the the front privilege? running? That was the front running yes. piece. Yes. Yeah. So they, they, do, do they get the same privileges on FTX that HFTs buy on the New York Stock Exchange? But and that was what everybody was kind of looking at. No one imagined he'd just taken all the money from FTX and moved it into Alameda Research. But so I ask him, like, if someone had asked you. Does, as is the risk engine applied to Alameda Research just the way it is to everybody else? And he says, I would have either made a word salad or I found a different question to answer. This is very telling. This is what he does. This is what he does. But but that very telling footnote. So you're a journalist, the f- you know, the foremost writer of your generation of this kind of thing exposing all sorts of financial irregularities and not only irregularities, but sort of um, advantage players and uh, righteous people who figure it out. I guess that's the moment when, when the guy says that to you, that he's giving up the con. And yeah, you put it in this footnote, you bury it deep in the book in a footnote. It's it's, so it's, it's, it happens where it happens in the book, but it's sort oh, of- Oh, I, no, no, I, I know, The footnote is actually, more it gets get your it's it's not in the back it, it at the bottom of the page it kind of gets your attention more than if it's in the thing in the in the text well yeah and yet michael you've done 100 interviews 60 minutes and i'm the first person who asked you about it you know so why it, you know why 
Why? Because most of the people who've interviewed me have not read the book. It, well, the vast majority of the people who've interviewed me have not read the book. And gross. It, that's gross, by the way, gross. But uh, gross. Yeah, and go so, ahead, say no, more. So, so, so it's it's all there. It's there for you to. It's it's look. One of the structures of the book, you can think of it this way, and it's set up this way, is a puzzle hunt. So the so Sam Bankman Fried, when he's a kid, has one relationship to the rest of the world really, where he has a social relationship and a social relationship he likes that he would like to reprise. And he's when he creates these puzzle hunts for for every, the, he calls for the nerds in the Bay Area to come solve this puzzle. He's created on the Stanford campus. And essentially, like it's like a hunt for a horcrux and involving complicated math questions, word games, all the rest. And he gets to sit and watch while he knows the answers and they don't. And he gets to watch people untangle his puzzle. It's really important to him that the puzzle in this book is who he is, basically, is one of the puzzles. He sets himself up as a puzzle. But for the reader, what I've done is let you go and solve the puzzle. You know, it, it is so boring. It would be so boring if, if I turn this into an op-ed. Uh, it just like, that. it's such a good story. Yes, no, it's not an op-ed. Uh, and in I didn't any leave way, it out. You know, if form. I was querying this narrative, I would not have put that in the book, right? I didn't have to put, no rule says I had to put that in the book. Uh, oh no, of course you made the choice to put that in the yeah. book, but I, and I'm saying in the book, no, but even as we're sitting here, it does seem to me, because this, I guess this is where I'm getting to, which is, you read David Moore's book about con artists, uh, you know, or any book about cons, and the kind of best targets for a con artist isn't a moron, it's the smartest person. And I just wonder if at any point you felt like you were being con, because that moment feels to me, like when he is revealing what he's been doing to you the whole time, which is that you're relying on, this is my question, I've been in the situation, right? I've interviewed a lot of criminals. Right. I've written about tons of them. I wonder if, if this guy is such a good player that like the most brilliant of these people, he did steal all this money, if by bringing you close, allowing it, he's trying. I, you get him, because so here it is, it's here, you get him. But whether he's trying to feed you a version of himself that will inculcate him in some way, and if that's possible. You know, it's not like my story was just me sitting around talking to Sam bankman fried Of course. I interviewed 200 people. And these people who are on the witness stand, Nishad Singh, I don't know how many hours I spent with Nishad. I interviewed the venture capitalists who gave him money. I interviewed his competitors. I, I mean, it's like, I, there was like a lot of stuff around this. So there is Sam's version of things and there are other people's versions of things. And I was aware of all versions. I didn't have to take, there's one moment in the book where I have to take Sam's account, but I put it in the footnote. I say, you, you probably wonder how I know this. It was, his, yeah, but it was, actually pretty yep. it was actually pretty damning about Sam, but, but it was, it came. Yeah. When it, he's with was, Gary, he's with uh, Gary and, with, um, and Nishad and Nishad. And, yeah. Right arguing about whether Nishad, how they're going to, Nishad's asking him to say that he didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, oh, you know what else was a lovely thing I thought you did in the book and I haven't heard anyone pick up on this either, which is there's a, and, and I got to say people read this book, you know, whatever you've heard, I've had a couple friends of mine who read all your books, Michael, say they they thought they were supposed to skip this one. And I'm like, no, 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 you gotta read the book. 
there are little things like there's a Eugene Landy character throughout the book. And um, I, when I, I, didn't, I didn't get that. A huge a Landy, there's a Dr. Landy, you know, Brian Wilson shrink uh, throughout oh, yeah. this book. And yeah, yeah. there's this great and you're reading the book and you're wondering how Michael knows what the shrink thought of certain aspects of these people. And then you just slide in. Well, he wasn't licensed to practice when he got to the Bahamas and, and he wasn't in an, 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 an MD capacity. The capacity he was in suddenly was like a corporate helper guy. And that's why he's not under HIPAA and you could find all this information out. And it was great that you threaded that in there, but it gave great insight to sort of what, you know, you could write, it feels to me like you could have written a whole book about that character too. Right. And at the beginning, you said something about, uh, the money bending to this. And that is for me, there's this paragraph in the book that feels very important because this is what I thought you were really doing. Um, though I have a slight, so I'm going to read you this paragraph and you say in the middle of all this, as things are collapsing, um, in the middle of all this, the woman responsible for the presence of Bahamas, of all the characters intervened this is the Bahamas person who kind of wanted there to be crypto in the Bahamas and made sure it was friendly uh, to re re regulations. And you say, um, the financial ecosystem that had grown around Sam and had become populated with opportunists who did very well off of him had collapsed. And by how those very people who had taken his money were turning on him without knowing exactly what he'd done. So long as Sam was giving away money to everyone, people loved him and nobody asked too many questions. The moment he was losing money, they turned on him and didn't want to hear his answers to the questions they asked him. And I felt like this is at the heart of so many of the things that you've been drawn to, which is the way in which greed and the need to be, the desire to be near power makes people forget themselves, forget to ask the questions that after the last time they were scammed, they promised that they would ask. Hmm. And it comes up over and over. It's the housing, it's everything about, everything from tulips forward, but you've mentioned in so many of your works. And I wonder if you see that as a through line. And um, because it does seem to me that the book, people want you to indict Sam, and I do too, by the way, and I feel that Sam, I'm certain that Sam is um, one a, a terrible sociopathic con artist. But I feel like what people are missing is that this is actually, for a capitalist, which you no doubt are, but this is an indictment of the way in which the desire for capital, of power, influence is just absolutely corrosive and a giant corrupting force um, whenever people feel like they can get some kind of an advantage. And is that a fair reading of, of what's at play? Um, that's a big statement. I think I do think of him as um, this kind of funhouse mirror held up uh, uh, to, the to the world of power and money. And that that was what interested me right from the start, that, that he was this, that, that it was, he was gonna give you this picture of the world around him. And it was really interesting. It's, this, is, this interests me a lot, that the people who were most responsible or most enabling of him, the venture capitalists, the crypto community, celebrity culture, lifted him up, him up in the most sensational way, right? It, I mean, he goes from nothing to $22 billion in 18 months, and he's a center of every, he's a, he's a center of attention at every party. And everybody wants to help. And nobody, I mean, especially like the venture capitalists, nobody's asking, nobody's insisting on the same kind of rules and regulations they that everybody else has to live by. He doesn't have to have a, a CFO. He doesn't have a board of directors. He can just tell them whatever he wants to tell them and they have to believe it or they don't believe it. 
that they're so afraid of missing out on the opportunity that they're willing to um, they're they're willing to sort of forget their principle, their investment principles, and their responsibility as the kind of grown-ups in the room. And so all that's true. What's also true is that when it goes bad, they're the ones who are most outraged and indignant and righteous. Your friends who are calling you and saying, how could you talk to that guy? These are the very assholes who are responsible for his rise. And it's very interesting to me that the way the, the, the map of the anger about Sam and the outrage isn't doesn't really match the map of the actual losses that FTX was an international exchange. Very few Americans on it. Uh, it you know, twenty percent of their customers were Turks. The rest were like Chinese and Indians. And right, they, but they the were, cascading, yeah, but the cascading effect of it. That, as you point, I mean, the cascading, yeah, the cascading effect cascading of its effect, failure. But but the outrage and the anger is so heavily concentrated in the American media and the American elite. And it's it's the feeling is about him in England, even say where they you could have you could have been a customer. Uh, um, but but much, because people don't want to feel foolish, because people don't want to feel foolish. But people don't want to accept their responsibility. So they, they want they they don't and they don't what they really don't want is people asking questions about them. So it, they don't want people asking questions about well, how do you do this venture capital stuff? Is this normal? Is this or, or or was this accepted? Or how do you run your crypto exchange? Is FTX? Do you have a trading firm on the side? Uh, it's it's the outrage. Is I mean also our culture is addicted to anger right now. That it is it, yes, it, absolutely. It, 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 Trump is a Trump is a is a is a, a symptom of the desire to to behave through anger rather than understanding or sympathy or whatever all kinds of other emotions you could go to. And it's all uniquely this way in the world. So I, I see even in his fall, Sam holding up a mirror to the world and teaching us something about the world. And he continues to be a kind of very educational. And I, I am, a, well, you've read the book, so you know, but I'm amazed that people need, that people are so disturbed by my willingness just to tell the story, even when I'm supplying them, that fuels their prejudices and their anger that they couldn't get elsewhere. That the fact that I'm staying out of it and letting them think what they want to think or let the reader think what they want to think bothers people. And that's interesting to me. Doesn't bother everybody. I mean, the, you do realize this is going to be the best-selling book I ever wrote. And so, so of course, it's, it's, and you know, and there is, I have had these sorts of experiences before you were you wouldn't have been part of the anywhere near the the tribe that was upset about the book but there have been a couple of books in the past where the vitriol that the book met with was just overwhelming for about a month and then the book found its legs and just went moneyball was a really good example well sure and i i know i i and also you know when you brought the liars poker people back to interview them now those so many people were upset back then and now incredibly I, I mean, upset incredibly upset and uh and so this is what's peculiar about this book is that i have a protagonist he's not a hero he's the protagonist of a story you know about the you know about such people because you've created tv shows uh, right about such people but if you took your main characters in billions and put them in real life and had them you'd say these are sociopaths uh of course all right but so so anyway um 
that's different about this book, and it's so interesting to me, and so much fun in a way, is that when I publish, and I knew this was true when I published, Sam Bankman-Fried, with the possible exception of his parents, Sam Bankman-Fried had not a single friend on the earth. Most, like nobody, nobody wanted to enter his point of view in any way. And, uh, or nobody wanted to think about him in any way except to how they already thought about him. And so to just tell the story and the story might lead, there's some risk the story might lead you, lead you to one place, but doesn't really lead every reader to the place you get to. And there's no, there's no, put it, put it another, you publish a book about Elon Musk. Yeah. A lot of people hate Elon Musk, but there's a whole tribe of people who are fanatically, you know, in love with Elon Musk. There is no party of Sam Bankman Freed. <laughs> there's no constituency that rises up. So the story has to just find its way on its own. And it's it's interesting to watch it do it. The only thing I would say that I question, or not even as I was reading the book, was it is a tiny bit, and it's not your words, it's hers. Like you're you're encapsulating Christina Roll, how do you pronounce her last name? Role or Roll. Christina Roll's point of view. But you know, so long as Sam was giving away money to everyone, people loved him. We are talking about the most brilliant game player. And so despite his lack of empathy, he did understand human motivations and used those human motivations against people to he get them to do what he wanted, right? No, she doesn't she say in that very passage, doesn't she say? Sam doesn't understand why people don't trust him. All you got is you just watch him. You see, he's playing you like a game. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, kind of um, in, in, in the end. But there is this moment where where toward the end, you know, the book says. Um, and this is, I guess, where I'm asking. So here's how I'd say this. Like, um, if I think about like uh, Liars Poker, Big Short, Moneyball, Unknowing Project. Undoing Project. Undo undoing. I mean, Undoing Project. Sorry, Undoing Project. It seems to me that they've often dealt with like lies we tell ourselves about imperfect information and how we fill that information in, how we advantage the information Ooh. we have and how we judge ourselves and others as a result of it. And like what risks personally or professionally we might take because of our read of that information, that imperfect information, that gap. And I was reading this thinking about the role that imperfect information played in like the reporting, the writing, the decision to publish when you did, and the reaction to the book. And I'm wondering if you well, could talk and in about the that way Sam moves bit. through the world, right? Yes, it, it, using imperfect it, information. So, yes, and suggesting so, it. He, he moving through the world in a way. First, the first time he's identified, self identified by anybody as having any special gifts, it's Jane Street, and it is his ability to deal with a situation that's essentially unknowability, like where. You can't well, know the right answer. Well, hold on. Sorry, that's not true by your own book. By your own book, it, and because I, I find this psychologically fascinating, he grew up in a home where teachers said, your son is gifted, and his parents said, no, he's not. Don't pro, don't skip him up in school. So that happened, no, so that happens once. But, but, it, okay, but it does happen, but it, it does happen. It happens once where the, but he does, Sam doesn't know this. He's in kindergarten, he's in kindergarten, and the teacher says you shouldn't keep him in public school. That's what they said. And the parents thought they're out of their is out of their mind. And then for the rest of school, he's like, he's sort of checked out. He's like not 
they don't have any evidence that he's but he changes school and he gets into the gifted math class and things become a little better for him there are moments along the way where i mean he gets into mit it's not like yeah no he's not he's not a total schlub no that's right but but he the first time the world comes at him and says you are really special at this like special special you're not just a a decent chess player and a decent mathematician. There is this thing you can do, and you're almost better. Is and and the thing is the thing is the Jane Street puzzles, and um and those what are those puzzles? We're talking, but you're talking about uncertainty. Those puzzles are they're throwing people into these wicked environments where they're where it helps to have some quantitative ability and to think probabilistically. But it does. There is no. It's like it's the same environment that that baseball GMs have when they're picking baseball players. You don't know what the guy's going to do. You're just trying to get to a better a better answer. There's not a perfect answer, just a better answer. And so that's threaded right through the book. And one of the reasons Sam appeals to all the people he appeals to is our world has sort of woken up to this way of thinking about problems. I mean, back when Moneyball was published, there was, uh, there was just like a conversation you couldn't have because two sides were just staring at each other. One side thought the scout knows who the good baseball player is and who isn't. There's an expert and you just listen to him. And and the other side thought you can't actually know. All you can do is get a little better and you can do this with data. And the one side was kind of very alive to the probabilistic nature of the, of the problem. The other side just thought would rationalize mistakes didn't think of it probabilistically and had real problem with just probabilistic thinking. The the business world has become infatuated with this way of thinking. And Sam takes it to this wild extreme, like estimating probabilities for things that you don't, you'll never know the probabilities for, like pulling it out of his rear end. So uh, uncertainty, the things I didn't know when I sat down, and as, as, as this applies to the writing of it, the things that I... What would I have loved to have had before I wrote that I didn't have? And it wasn't, now I've watched the trial. It wasn't that much, but I would really would have loved to be able to sit down with Gary and Caroline and Nishad after it all collapsed. So that, I didn't have access to them, but I, have, I had access to all the other people, all the other witnesses that was, and what's come out has not really jarred my reality. I think he knew and they, they all knew they had a hole. They, when the hole opens up in June, they all know. Uh, they, they all know there's degrees of how much they're paying attention to it or caring about it or adjusting their behavior. Exception of Nishad. Nishad apparently doesn't know until September. But I don't know. I don't feel like I wouldn't have written the book differently having seen the prosecution's well, case. What about the one testimony thing that she says where she says, uh, like in late 21, maybe, where so she is, that analyzes the- those bad but unlikely scenarios and then Sam still invests the $3 billion in venture? That seems a weird moment, right? So, so actually the book shows, this is, Caroline's testimony was this, to me, the the kind of squirreliest. So Nishad and Gary's completely match up to the people I know. Caroline's, there was a kind of reinterpretation of her feelings in the moment way back when that don't come through in her correspondences with Sam. And this particular case the, the prosecution's are the prosecution's not, not arguing that this thing that there was a hole that there was money missing until June of last year, but they did want to suggest that this kind of behavior was might have been going on before. And the example they use, the Caroline says, is when he buys out CZ, 
And he he it's a he has to write him a it ends up being two billion dollars, but a billion dollars in actual money and another billion in these tokens. And that Caroline said she was unsettled because the billion dollars came from customer funds. In fact, like days after, not even like weeks after, days after, much more venture capital was coming in from the outside. So all there was he was essentially replacing CZ with Sequoia and all these other places. And the Sequoias and all these other places knew exactly what he was doing. They they knew that their money was coming in to go to to get CZ out of it. You you know, they they they'll say that even now. And so it wasn't really he wasn't I mean there was a mismatch of a couple of days cuz he didn't want CZ to see the valuation the venture capitalists were placing on the business because CZ would have then jacked up the so this so so yes when I saw that I thought well maybe that's the begin that's like the first time he'd have thought wow I can actually use that money uh rather than just have it sit there but it, and so maybe that was the the beginning of the slippery soap but it, what it wasn't was a moment that would have alarmed Caroline at all because she knew that there was 1 billion was going out, but 1.8 was coming in and it was, wasn't like the customer's money was going to be missing. But, but that is the truth. And I'll just say for the red for the, for the listener who's not, hasn't read the book yet. The, the challenge I have with that as an idea that it's not a big deal is that that is literally basically um, very many of the embezzlement scams that have ever gone on is somebody going, I only was using it, my I was only using it to cover the shortfall between when I had to pay my mortgage and when the other thing was coming and then that fell away. So then I had to keep doing it, right? I mean, that is time immemorial, Michael, right? Yeah, that is, is what happens. You do, because there's one point something billion coming in two days later and they know it. And what, so, so it, but I do agree that that might have been the moment where Sam realizes that that money can move and nobody's going to notice it. Uh, yes, that, it's it's, and, it's and, the, but, because the first time you use, as you know, because you've yes. written about this kind of thing so many times, the yeah. first time you put your hand in the till and you yeah. take the customer's money right. and and because you tell yourself, I'm going to replace it. Right. That is when every Ponzi scheme in history has started. So a couple of things. One is this, this, this thing is such a messy story in part because- yes. It was never just the customer's money was never distinguished from F, from Sam's money. It, 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 this was true back in their hedge fund. But that's a crime. But 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 so but this was yes. But this is also probably true in other crypto firms. But any case, the, but that's a crime. That is but, a crime. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't know. I'm under no illusion about whether he's going to go to jail or not go to jail. Right. I mean, yes. 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 Of like, course. Uh, yes. Of course. It's it's. But but this is actually the first thing that alarms his colleagues back in 2018 is that they have some of their money in this hedge fund, their own private yes. money. Yes. And they have $175 million from other effective altruists who are, who are investors. And Sam just keeps it all in one pot. And for technical reasons in the very beginning of FTX, they could, the technical reason being they didn't have a bank account. Yeah. That, that if you, if you, if you, Brian, said ah ftx this new exchange i want to have some i want to buy some crypto through that i want to have my my dollars there if you want if you they, and they sent you instructions about how to get the dollars onto ftx what it said was you're wiring this money to alameda i you know the, because alameda had bank accounts and uh so the money starts never gets to ftx it's like sitting there in piles and in in, in but until that moment the day he sends a, th a billion dollars to CZ and then a billion eight or whatever comes in right after. Until that moment, 
I don't think that there is, and after that moment, up until June, I don't think there's ever a deficit in that. I think that if FTX customers had showed up in, I know this, in January of 2022 and all wanted their money back, they could have gotten their money back. It would, uh, it's, it's where that, where the moment the hole opens up and the money's not even there, or a lot of it's not there, is, is June of last year. So okay, two more things before I'm going to let you go, um, and I appreciate your time. But they're you'll like these two things. They're they're direct from 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 the book. Let me ask you a question. I so, got a question yes, sir. You. So you you've produced this television show, Billions, for whatever many seasons, six, eight, uh, seven, seven seasons over eight, seven years. seasons. Yeah. And you were great, and you were great in your appearance this season. Oh well, well thank you. That, but but here's a question: What kind of TV show would it be? If you didn't give your viewer the opportunity to like acts. Well, but I'll, I'll, so that's really great to think about and I'll, I'll answer it for you. What David and I thought was that, okay, so this was really intentional on our part, as it always is on your part. This is what was intentional. We noticed that the country was starting to uh, be in really in thrall and under the sway of figures who instead of being uh, having real quality of character, had these characteristics of like um, verbal acuity, charisma, power, and wealth, right? And so what we wanted to do was over the first six episodes, allow the viewer to like think, oh, this guy's against, the we, we do show right from the beginning, there's some questions, but then it's like we want them to kind of like take the ride and then feel themselves sucked in. And then we reveal in the first season, Axe lets somebody die who he could have saved because that guy might someday be able to testify against things. And he lets this guy die just to make a little bit more money instead of extending the guy's life a little bit. And what we had anticipated was in that moment, the audience would understand that what was happening was uh, they had given their allegiance to a deeply flawed, but possibly sociopathic individual who, uh, although he knew himself, which was something that most people didn't, that in that moment they would realize, oh, fuck, I'm complicit. But we, all of us, don't want to feel complicit. And that is what we realized. And that's what one realizes reading the book, is that we don't want to feel complicit. And this is what I'm getting to. So yeah, it was intentional, dude. But what we thought was that the that the viewer would understand the kind of um, transference that happened and then would snap back into reality and be able to observe both figures, right? Because also at that time, remember, many prosecutorial figures were using their positions to advantage themselves. So they were trying to be uh, undefeated. They were sort of uh, not living to their oath. And we were hoping to put that all on display. And I think that's part of why the show really worked. But people had allegiance which is honestly what I feel like is part of what's um, the tribalism, which was the crypto tribalism, which then got betrayed by Sam as part of what stokes all this anger. I've given this a lot of thought. So, uh, you know, um, because it echoes so much of this. But I guess I, I would say that, could you just tell the Bob story? Because it is... Um, Here's another thing Noah's asked me about. And you're right, it's a really... It's a it's a really cool little key to the mind of Sam Bankman-Fried, and it's a little mental exercise that's Sam blew Sam's mind, and he liked to think about. Bob is your best friend. You really think you know Bob. Bob goes to a house party with uh, nineteen other people. You're not there. 
in this house party, someone is just grotesquely, brutally murdered. It's just terrifying. We know someone in the house party did it. We don't know who did it. How do you think about Bob? And Sa- Sam says, well, there's no good way to think about Bob. You can't, it doesn't, you can't just say, oh, there's no chance, zero chance Bob did it. And I can't, I'm not going to update at all on this information. On the other hand, it seems totally unfair to treat Bob as if he's an axe murderer. And so like, what do you, how do you treat, you treat him as like he's 5% of an axe murderer? There's no good way, there's either way you treat him, you're, you're, there's some, there's some deep injustice there. If you treat him as if he's completely innocent, well, you're ignoring the possibility. There is some probability he's actually the culprit. If you treat him if he's, he's completely guilty, well, that's really not fair. And Sam, this this sort of like failure of probabilistic thinking to get you to a morally acceptable place just stymied Sam. And Sam, in that moment, the moment I tell that story, Sam is Bob because he's surrounded by these effective altruists. It's 2018. Half of them think he's a genius and half of them think he's a criminal. They've they've lost this money. They don't know whether it's lost like stolen or lost like you lost your car keys. And everybody's trying to figure out, how do you think about Sam? And he was interested in the story, I think, because he was constantly on the receiving end of how do you think about Bob? But then you bring it back at the end of the book and you bring it back with a, a person who's more of a feeling person. And you say that was the kind of guy Yes. So the moral center, the moral center of this book is the original great in crypto, Zane Tackett. He is he is clearly the moral center of the book. And it was I got so lucky in my material. It was just happy accident that Zane is like the last person to walk out of the Bahamas and is sitting there drinking a bottle of rum, ruminating on this as he as he walks away from Sam and condemns it. And he's and, a figure with feeling in the world of this. And, and, and what do you say that and, his and view of, of like, Bob is? He's Bob's his friend. Bob is innocent. And you don't update at all on the murder. But if you see Bob like burying a knife in the back of the back of the yard, you go shoot Bob. Uh, that you he, he, it's black and white with Zane. And and he had been it had been, you know, Sam had been his friend and sa- he had trusted Sam. And then Sam had caused him to go out and lie on his behalf. And and he he flipped. And well, that I think you're hearing the voice of like common morality when you're. Well, that you're, feels like the moment because you editorialize. It's the little bit of the moment where you say you sort of say Zane was the kind of person who Bob and it might be for people who are looking for some version of what you think toward the end of this. I would say that the Bob bringing back that story about Bob, uh, I do think might give us a little bit of insight into what the author is thinking is going on here in this story. Yeah. Uh, uh, and lastly, hey, very, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, lastly. No, no, go ahead. Uh, the author's job a, was to tell this story. but And so the author told this story. Yes, but the uh, author does in that moment, does, yes. does in that moment say in his own words, not in Zane's words, that Zane's the kind of person who would think yeah. that. That is the author saying that. So I think that's a clue for people about what the author might have been thinking. Um, and then, uh, and sorry, by the way, that I didn't show you this side of myself when you came to my set, but my job that day was to build you up, not to let you know that I was formidable. Um, <laughs> it was a different, there was a totally different experience you were having that day. Lastly, there's this incredible moment in the book when someone finally tells Sam Bankman-Free to stop playing the fucking video game. And I snorted aloud. Because that moment illustrates, and it's another authorial moment, the choice, 
uh, to include it as they all are. But to me, it's the final wake up and do the right thing when finally wake up is shouted and everybody has to stop. Everybody has to come to their senses here that we're in life, not in a fucking game. And I, as a, and you're nodding along again because I'm the only person who brought this up to you probably. So just talk a second about that idea that, that, that this gameplay, which everyone's rewarded for, we are constantly in the book rewarding people for being great at solving puzzles, analytical, understanding how to fuck somebody over by what's underneath the puzzle. And everyone's indulging in this the whole time and the split focus. And finally, someone's like, stop playing the game. If someone would have just said that to this kid 25 years ago and made him be act like a human being, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And I couldn't help again but think it was you, the author, making a point about what the culture indulges. Is, am I off base? No, I think it's, I don't think you're way off base at all. I think, and th that moment was so shocking because that is the moment the place is imploding. They can't figure out where the money is. They're looking, banks are calling and saying, we've got this, these millions and those millions and it's chaos. And it looks like, and in that moment, Sam's playing a video game. And, uh, and Nishad, who is suicidal, his colleague, yes. starts, to, starts to scream at him. It's the first time Nishad really stood up to him. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was like he finally broke Nishad. And it is true. You know, I think the game, if you look at the kind of trading he did at Jane Street, he learns that this is a game. It's, it's just it's just video game. You know, it's like, and the the put another way, the kind of things they were doing to make money, not all the time, but some of the time, was just exploiting other people's idiocies in ways you might not ever do face to face with people that it, you're seeing someone doing something they really shouldn't be doing in the markets. And if you were actually just trying to be a good human being, you'd call them and say, Hey, you, you got a mistake here. Don't be doing this. You're, you've created an opportunity for my bot to come in and screw you. Yes. Um, but they don't even think that that, that thought, that's a, such a bizarre thought that, to them. The thought is the, the thought they think is like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to screw him until, you know, he's done. And, Zero sum. Uh, yeah. And and it's there's not even a moment of thinking like what are the consequences for that person of building this machine that's going to exploit the innocent idiocy of that other machine. Uh and that that's just woven into the character of Sam Bankman Fried. Uh he he doesn't it really helps not to have empathy in that situation or not to be thinking about your the actual consequences for other people. And you're you're not just like it's not this isn't just tolerated this is rewarded it's sort of like this is how you got to be okay very last thing very very last there's this little throwaway moment it's three lines and i'm 100% certain nobody's asked you about this you say in this moment of crisis well if sam's got to decide if he's going to uh, invest in twitter and you say well, he calls in two other people that he can actually talk to because they're smart and then again one of the rare times the author shows up you say or at least smart in that high IQ way that he seems to regard. And I, my mind was blown reading that because it, to me, was the one time, again, where you directly said, we may very well be valuing a whole bunch of the wrong thing. Well, that's true. It's 4.0 stupid. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's this, and it is this 
this you may be probably caught your eye that Sam says earlier in the book you could tell that the power on Wall Street was drifting to to Jane Street from Morgan Stanley just by seeing the average IQ of the people who went to Jane Street rather than Morgan Stanley, and it is a particular kind of intellectual aptitude, intellectual aptitude that he and his friends all valued, and they missed out completely on other forms of intelligence. Couldn't see the couldn't see. But the isn't it interesting? So, but what does it say about you, Michael Lewis, the journalist, the writer? The scouts were all the guys who had this old fashioned way of just leading with their gut and not accessing their IQ. And you noticed that there was an imbalance and that IQ was needed. And Billy and Theo and all those dudes and women were uh, high IQ people who uh, applied this kind of rigorous thinking to what had been a purely feel thing. And you noticed this imbalance and wanted to correct. It obviously felt like it needed to be fixed. And now it feels like you're saying, hold on, we might have swung too far in the other direction. It's money ball out of control. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. And they're all, one way, they're, I, what I loved about the story is there's so many little things that just drop out of it without a whole lot of help from me. But one of the things that drops out of the stories is a plea for the humanities. It's sort of like, you know, these people, these people are so smart and they can't see that Shakespeare is good. You know, it's, they can't see, they can't see what's going on there. It's a blindness. It isn't, it isn't, it's not exactly a, it ends up being a moral failing. It doesn't start out that way. It's actually an intellectual blind spot. It's just like their brains do this and they don't do that. And my brain is not like their brains. And so in some ways it's a, it's a, it's it's my brain defending itself in the form of a story. I mean, after all, Sam Bankman-Fried announces that books are pointless, that he doesn't read books. And I am writing a book about this person. I mean, the book is a kind of like answer to that point. Uh, and yes, it is. I agree. Thank you, Michael Lewis. You are, you know, I've read every single book you've ever written and I will read every book you uh, write as long as I'm able to read. Uh, if we ever get to do this again, I want to talk all about how you make the music, because one thing that I think gets lost in a book that's controversial like this is that it is incredibly hard to, I was saying this to someone about something else, it's incredibly hard to make something seem easy. It's incredibly hard as a writer to just carry the reader along and to make these characters seem real. And, and I know it's not effortless, but it reads effortlessly. And that is one of the hardest things to do. And I've always saluted you for it, man. And that's why you're an inspiration because your um, ability to do this is something that I've tried very hard to emulate. So keep writing these books and thank you. Thanks, great talking to you.